roll. Awesome. So today, uh, welcome to episode number seven of the Manufacturing Hub podcast with myself and Dave. Uh, we've decided to switch up the format a little bit. So in the past, we've been doing just random topics on each and every episode. And so going forth, I believe we agreed to four episodes on a specific topic. That way we can essentially expand a little bit more than what we've done in the smaller series. And so concentrate on one bigger topic and at the same time discuss it ourselves, then invite some guests that are going to expand a lot more. And so today we're going to be kicking this off with manufacturing intelligence and everything that that encompasses. And essentially, we're going to be talking about MES systems. We're going to be talking about OE calculations. And I think the goal for the two of us is to bring this back to our own experience, share some maybe projects that have succeeded, projects that have failed, some challenges around those topics, define it for those who are not familiar maybe with uh, these systems as much as they would like to be. And then obviously answer the questions as they come in from every social media challenge, uh, channel. And then next episode, so next week, we are talking about bringing in experts in those fields that might have more insight and knowledge than ourselves. And we're going to continue expanding on this conversation. So with all that being said, uh, Dave, would you like to kick us off? I think uh, we'll start off with a simple question. So manufacturing execution systems or MES, what is it? What does it actually represent? What have you seen? Uh, what are some of the insights that you can maybe share with us? Yeah, no, I think that, that's a great question. So, uh, so MES manufacturing execution systems are certainly an integral part of kind of any sort of manufacturing intelligence, as uh, as you hear that in part of the the larger scope of everything. And I kind of boil um, MES down to it's taking your process data um, uh, from the plant floor and extrapolating that out into a variety of analysis and reporting, kind of visualizing everything that you have. Um, and the number one thing that I talk about when I talk about MES is OE, OEE, so overall equipment effectiveness or overall equipment efficiency, which is, um, and Vlad and I have both talked about this, and I kind of describe it at, at its most base. You know, it's math understanding what the what you're doing on the plant floor and then comparing that against what you think it is. Um, OEE is broken down into availability product <clears throat> um, APQ availability, productivity and quality. Um, and then that, that gives us our uh, our overall OEE as we uh, as we are talking about that. Um, and I, I can kind of continue to uh, to go on a little bit uh, before we, we dig into anything kind of in particular, Vlad. Is there anything uh, overall that uh, you'd like to uh, to bring up about MES in general? Yeah, I think uh, I like your definition, but I, I think it also adds like certain systems that are not just purely based on data, right? So it encompasses also like personnel control, it encompasses some of the maintenance tasks. And I guess it kind of, I guess, again, in, in my experience, blends a little bit with the ERP systems that are going to be sitting on top, mm -hmm. but it's also some personnel and some asset management aspects built into it. So, and again, it depends on who you talk and like what the real kind of cutoff point is. But mm -hmm. for me, it just encompasses a lot of those uh, systems as well. And of course, it, again, I think uh, what I kind of 
wrote in my article on MES, this really depends also on the nature of the business, but also on the size of the facility, right? So in smaller plants, you may see some very basic functions of, uh, you know, what you've described and in much larger or, you know, global manufacturing companies, you're going to start seeing like a full suite of, of these products. So I think it's important to keep in mind also that, uh, MES or even like OE calculations might not mean the same thing to uh, to two different people that come from different industries, different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I guess my experience has been in food and beverage slash somewhat medical devices. And I'm pretty certain that in oil and gas, you know, the MES systems are similar, but they're going to be uh, the calculations are going to be different. The way they work with those systems is going to be different. Uh, so it, it's just something to keep in mind, I think, in addition to what you said. No, no, I would agree with that. And, and I kind of tell people that MES is basically, for the most part, it's a bar in which you can measure against yourself. Um, as Vlad certainly talked about, kind of, it, it's, a, it's a calculation. Everyone kind of does their calculation slightly different. Everyone thinks that their calculation is better for whatever reason than the other people. I, I generally talk about it as um, I generally talk about it as we're going and we're, we're doing the calculation one way. We're creating a baseline and then we're measuring against that baseline. And as long as we increase from that baseline and we are doing better ourselves, which we can also measure by output and the, the physical quality of the goods, we know that we are getting better as a whole. And then to kind of continue what you were saying, Vlad, it seems to be one of those processes that you start in one place and it's just an ever growing web. And so you you may go from, you want to measure, you know, just a line and then you've got system personnel in there and then you've got assets. And uh, again, as you mentioned, it's one of those that we certainly see a lot of different um, opportunities and different places that you can calculate MES. Um, I've seen uh, like SAP and a variety of other ERP systems uh, say that they have MES or OE included. I don't necessarily a thousand percent understand how they are pulling the process data from the process floor into it, but I mean, they're doing math one way. Um, I believe earlier in this year, maybe the first episode of this year when we were talking about trends, uh, either we discussed it or I was reading an article talking about kind of one of the assumed trends is people kind of throwing off the shackles of a large overarching system, potentially like legacy ERP systems, and going to more specific handed uh, or m- more specific uh, solutions for things such as MES so that they can get closer to the process data. Yeah, I think it's... Uh... I guess there's a lot of points that you've made that I would like to kind of expand on. But one of the points is that, and I've seen this also in the field that you've got currently these juggernauts, right? So you mentioned SAP as one of them uh, that I feel are more tailored towards the accounting slash financial side. And that's how I think SAP began its operations. And now they seem to provide pretty much every service service under the sun, right? So you can have your SAP provide you an accounting service, a maintenance. Uh, it's used as a CMMS. It's used on MES as an OE calculation, as a historian, as a SCADA. There's like a plethora, I guess, of solutions within that one software. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I'm seeing happening is that, um, I guess, manufacturers are 
not getting exactly what they need out of these larger systems because there's no how to say it like very tailored approach so for example like the data like you mentioned it doesn't fully um how to say it encompass exactly what you need and in many times I wouldn't say that they take shortcuts, but I would say that they don't go to the same granularity of a level that a smaller systems integrator or some of these newer systems could just because, again, they're selling you a very big solution and they don't have the time, you know, to connect to each and every PLC at the plant. So the OE calculations must be, must be a little bit rough on the edges, so to speak. And I think more and more manufacturers are maybe looking to switch to different solutions and that's uh that's at least what i've uh i've been seeing and i can tell you from experience dave so in the last two three years like i've been integrating a lot of these oe based systems at uh, various plants and i think that the manufacturers really appreciate you being able to not only like show that data but also explain to them how that data is being calculated and take the time to, I guess, validate would, would be an obvious statement, but take the time to work with them on tailor it to their exact like line and specification. Because again, manufacturing lines, even in food and beverage are very different. And in certain cases you have boxes and certain cases you have yields, you have products that are, you know, a little, a little bit different than others. So I think that's an important attention to detail going forward. You know, I would completely agree with that. And, and I think one of the overarching themes that, that you were mentioning, Vlad, is understanding of the process and having someone come in there with the process knowledge, be it a controls engineer or a process engineer or a manufacturing engineer, someone who understands what the process is so that they can build a system that makes the most sense for that facility. Because even if you're doing, you know, the same MES rollout of 14 facilities across North America, each facility is going to be slightly different. The yep. lines are going to be set up different. We'll have different manual processes. Uh, that, then you get into the, how are you, you know, counting downtime? And then do we have manual entry if it's not one of these top issues of downtime? You, you just go into a rabbit hole. And so, you know, coming with a, you know, potentially 80%, 90% of a solution is good, but I'm not sure that I've ever been to an implementation or to a facility that you can drop in a solution that works at that facility, but it also works at the five facilities down the road. So all of them are slightly different and part of the value of the integration of a MES system is going and understanding what's happening with that process so that you can tailor something to that particular facility. So we got a question from Anthony. Uh, so he's asking, are you doing more custom applications for OE calculations? Uh, so to answer that um, and give you, I guess, a, a better idea of uh, what the company that I've worked for has been doing. So essentially, I would come in as the process slash controls engineering expert. So like Dave uh, mentioned, it's very important to understand the process. And so I would come in and understand the data at the very core level that would be sent from the plant floor into a data concentrator, which then would process that data, send it to a web application, obviously a database as well, and then display that data to management. So my role was um, getting the data, figuring out like which asset is going to send which points of I.O. So again, 
to break it down maybe into simpler terms, uh, you've got a manufacturing line that has, for example, a case packer, a wrapper, palletizer, filler, uh, capper, so in the food and beverage industry. And so each one of them would be programmed by a third party at some point. So I would have to log in get the PLC programs, understand how that machine functions, and then funnel that data into a data concentrator. Now, there's a lot that goes into it in you need to understand very well what kind of data you're sending to which I alluded to, but then there's also the validation process. So once the data is being sent, you need to constantly monitor what we're getting from each machine, understand how that works. And then um, once the data is presented, we need to make sure that it makes sense. So again, if we go back to kind of the OE metrics, so you've got your performance, you've got your quality. And so starting with just those two, you need to be able to send the right signals. So at the again at the core plc level it would be counters for rejects for example now every machine is going to be programmed differently you've got machines coming in from you know the european side you've got machines built in the us you've got machines that somebody just put together uh in the machine shop so there's there's a lot of nuances to that and so the logic needs to be um i wouldn't say perfected but needs to be studied in depth in order to send the right signals and we'll talk about data quality i think a little bit more as we go further with this but um at the end of the day you want to make sure that your data is right at the source and that you're getting the right information upstream to your database so that you could display that ultimately to the management teams so hopefully that kind of answers the question. And in terms of, I guess, custom applications. So yeah, so this was a custom application that has been built uh, by my company. Like I was saying, I was more on the control side of things. And then the company owner or my boss has developed a solution that was fully custom built for the customer. And then as Dave had mentioned, we, we would have to tailor that at each site slightly differently because again, even from line to line, the process with, uh, would slightly change, right? Mm -hmm. And so there, there's a lot of challenges in that, but it's more, uh, I would say for me, was on the control system side. And there's of course challenges on the database and data presentation side uh, in which I'm a little bit less familiar. Dave, what are, um, I guess, if we want to jump in and follow up on that, some of the challenges that you have seen, and I guess I'd be curious, maybe not on the technical side, but on the business side. And when it comes to, let's say, maybe selling or pitching these solutions or trying to kind of work with your customers to understand their needs better. You know, I think that that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And especially in the last few years, while I certainly have not been doing the, the technical nuts and bolts, kind of building the model and, uh, and building the math out, a lot of my side is on the, the conversations of should we implement an MES and what does that look like? And so when I talk to people kind of historically, it's been the, you know, we're going to measure where you are so that we can help you go through a process so that you can become more efficient so that you can make more product with less waste. And so that becomes a, well, I, I guess kind of on the selling side, it becomes a fairly quick question of, is this something that the people are interested in and a lot of the MES kind of goes into what I talk about now. It's very much like an organizational change. Uh, quite frankly, you know, some people are willing to go through the process of spending the money and going through the implementation so that they can then take the data and, and make the appropriate decisions. 
and other places are, are not willing to go through the process of going through the organizational change that is needed. Um, as, a, as a quick aside, so I, I have seen, you know, a million dollar NES project fall apart because the scheduler decided that they wanted to continue to schedule on pen and paper. They weren't going to schedule in the system because they couldn't schedule in the system this you know million dollar project got mothballed and to the best of my knowledge is still mothballed because no one has ever gone through the process of actually implementing kind of the, the mes across the board and so as, as we look at things uh, that very much becomes part of like scope creep and making sure that we don't get into scope creep and that kind of goes back to the agile development uh theory that we were talking about um in the beginning to make sure you don't go through that so um, to, to get back to the question on the business side, what does the sales process look like? Generally, when I'm having conversations with people, it's figuring out, you know, where the organization is and how you can best help them. You know, sometimes you go in, you have a conversation about MES, and they're like, yes, I would really love to do that, but I have none of my TLCs networks, right? Like, I've got a whole bunch of silos, and so it's a process that you go through to build up so that you can, you know, pull data from the PLCs so that you can put it in some sort of process historian or, or a database. And then, you know, then you can go and, and visualize the data. And so while the data visualization, what you're actually doing with the process becomes the end output, uh, there, there are certainly many steps that, uh, that I see that some facilities have to go through to, uh, to be able to get the end out. But I would like to point out that I have never, well, I, I, I have never kind of gone front to end of an MES implementation that did not have some large amount of, uh, of return on investment, almost always very quickly in the, you know, multiple months um, or a couple of quarters. We see, you know, a very quick turnover because of, as Vlad was saying, the data that gets presented. And if you can show people where they are and if they can see why they have downtime, and they can go start plucking that low-hanging fruit, and they can uh, decrease their downtime. They can increase their uptime, and then you know you go through some process and some visualization processes so that you're helping people on the plant floor understand where they are versus quota. I see that a lot, especially in like food and bev lines, of just showing them where they are in regards to where they should be, and you almost immediately get like a 10 to 20 percent boost is what I see because they don't you don't know what you don't know you're like oh i'm doing great i'm working really hard until it's to the point of oh man you know i was a third of quota how did i get to a third of quota i thought i was working so hard whereas if lad was working first shift and he made you know 27 widgets and i'm like oh i'm so much better than Vlad. i can come in on third shift and i can crush 27 widgets so i go in and make 30 widgets and, you know, in the morning, Vlad sees that Dave made 30 widgets. He's like, oh, I can make more than Dave. I'm so much better. I'm first chef Vlad. And then suddenly Vlad makes 33 widgets. It, it, it's simple human nature. I've done that, um, you know, through a variety of systems or through a variety of, like, uh, colored lights and encoders. Uh, a couple of hundred different facilities uh, through a few different organizations. And that very quickly becomes a huge boost in uh, a huge boost especially semi-manual processes. That's an interesting point, I guess, to your last comment. I'm curious to see if we're going to um, see a lot more gamification of such systems, you know, where you can 
I don't know if you can naturally put, you know, people on like first shift against the people on the third shift, but I think that's kind of the mentality of, uh, you know, you start raising those questions like, well, why is the third shift performing a little bit less well than, you know, the first shift? And then you try and identify, well, maybe my operators are not trained, but you cannot see that with, uh, you know, by just like going out there with a pen and paper. You really need to understand like how they're tweaking the system. And I think there's so many stories, like even in my head that popped off as you were talking about that. And I remember, you know, I wouldn't believe these stories until I would show up to a facility and they would tell me, well, you know, like on like a monthly basis or even on a weekly basis, we're missing 10,000 pounds of peanut butter. And I, I would even ask them like, well, what do you mean? Like you're missing it. Well, and, and they would show me calculations where like, here's how many, like batches of ingredients went in and here's like how much it's supposed to make on this line. And for whatever reason, here's the output of, uh, you know, the number of, of barrels and they would have absolutely no idea. They wouldn't know where like 10,000 pounds of peanut butter would go each month. And like, of course, at, at first glance, you would think that, well, like it should be obvious. It should be tracked. It should be, you know, whatever. But the reality is that a lot of these facilities don't have, any systems in place you know and forget even about not being connected to the network they have systems that cannot even be connected to the network i don't know if you've seen mm -hmm. this um I, I would assume you have but you know those like round charts it's like a paper chart with uh with like a needle oh, yeah. on the side Chart recorders oh, exactly I, I guess like i'm <laughs> I'm like on the younger side of the, like the controls engineers. And so I always get surprised to see that equipment, but um, you know, I'd go to a facility and they're like, Oh, well, we'd like to put in this OE tracking system. And we'd like to see where the batches are going. We'd like to measure this and that. And then you go out to the actual floor and it's not, you know, my first question is like, Oh, well, we can definitely network your equipment and see what's going on. But then you walk out to the floor and that's what they're using. And they're actually replacing mm -hmm. the charts, you know, to measure the temperature. And they're, they're like, well, mm -hmm. we would like a system to understand, you know, how our batches are cooked, where they're going after they have been processed. And you just, you kind of, you have to break it to them in the sense that well, there's going to be a lot of work to be done. And to mm -hmm. your point at the, uh, at the at the start of the uh, of the previous comment, is that there's going to be steps I think in MES slash OE implementations that start with a basic audit of the facility and understanding of where they would like to go in a certain process of time, right? Because at the end of the day, you might not only invest in the system that sits in the cloud collects your data there's going to be a lot of pre-work required to implement some of these solutions again um you know from drawing from my experience we would need to in many cases purchase server hardware you know so even if they would have let's say a solution that uh, would distribute plcs on the network that you know technicians or engineers could communicate with they wouldn't have a server that would allow them to store the data uh, that would be required, right? So that's going to be another investment that you would need to discuss with the facility mm -hmm. and uh, kind of go from there. That being said, we did a we did get a question from Ira. So is there an expectation of the data that would be available from the new or existing equipment to integrate into the MES? And I guess I'll, I'll uh, give my own two cents on that. So the way it's been um, that we've been working at least, so the... 
existing equipment so the one that's currently on the manufacturing floor there will be engineering requirements set before we start the project right so like we talked about the basic oe for example but then there would be like availability there would be rejects productivity there would be um in our case like fault code so i think that's a very basic uh requirement to what you would pull in so for example, if you're looking at an entire line, you would see the productivity of the line, but then you could drill down to a specific assets and see uh, how many times they have stopped in uh, in production, how long did it take to repair the assets. And there's a bunch of acronyms used in manufacturing about this. So I'm mean time between failure, mean time between uh, repair. So there's going to be uh, all kinds of metrics that are calculated at the MES slash like OE layers, but you mm. would need to send that data to your database in order to have it processed. And then the way we would treat new assets. So we would essentially, again, I can talk to the pricing model, but you would bill based on the number of assets at a certain facility. And of course the work required to pull that data in. And if they were to bring in new assets down the road, so after the project had started, they could pretty much either choose to do it on their own. So we would make it open enough for them to be able to bring that data in on their own once they're familiar with the process or they could bring the, us back in as, again, this is more of a systems integration pro project that we would need to, once again, go back to whoever built that machine, understand the data, send the data to the data concentrator, and then over to the MES system that would then, once again, present those reports to the management teams. So hopefully that answers the question. And then just to, uh, just to kind of tag on to the IRA question, Mm -hmm. um ideally yes but i would generally say i don't have expectations that it'll be there uh very similar to what vlad was saying in an ideal world you can give engineering and functional requirements and the data and the tags show up and the plcs are networked and you have a server or a space in a rack to put a server to be able to do the things that you're looking for but in my experience it's it's generally not the case uh, generally, you, you come in and you have to look at the project holistically, and there may or may not be, you know, all of the tags that you're looking for in the PLC, or the PLC mm. is maybe really old, and you've got to do something like grab ProSoft modules, even just be able to network some of the older, like, PLC5s into, um, into the network. And so, um, ideally... Yes, there should be data that you can pull from. Uh, there is generally not any ex expectation, and I would say there's generally not an expectation because there isn't really a standardized way that we write PLC code, which is uh, which could delve us into a whole nother uh, topic. But because there's no standardized way, you know, Vlad's going to write his one way. I'm going to write mine a different way. Ira, you're just going to write yours a third way. No one's going to write that down. So as we go and uh, as, as we go and, you know, uh, write PLC code over the years, it's going to be one of those that we all do it slightly three different ways and they all change. And so tag names are all slightly different. And because the tag names are slightly different, you cannot pull, you know, one name and be able to, uh, to go and understand what that looks like. So as we go and build an MES system or as we go and try to do you know, some sort of manufacturing intelligence or look at artificial intelligence or machine learning, you have to go back through and scrub data kind of from the ground floor up. So it's very much one of the, 
ideally you should be able to pull some standardized things out, but it's not typically, it's unfortunately not typically the norm to be able to like easily go in and say, hey, this is the software system I've built. Let me drop it in. Let me pull tag names. They're all the same throughout the system. And 45 minutes later, we're up and running. That's why, at least to some extent, why the systems are as costly as they are. Yeah. And I think to um, to add on to that response the i think the relationship with the uh, with the person that's looking to implement these solutions is extremely important right because at the end of the day as you've mentioned like i've run into tons of issues of that nature right and as you i guess get ready to work on one of these projects you might have a single scope in mind and a lot of times you know, the, the, the reality is, is that you're going to be on the positive side, right? So if you know, let's say what kind of a PLC they're using, what kind of a system, then you're going to uh, kind of quote it on the more positive end. And as you dive into the system, you might want to discuss with your client where, well, here's where we are, here's what it's going to take. Maybe, again, maybe you didn't anticipate certain challenges down that road. And again, I, I've seen all, all, all sorts of things and without getting too technical, uh, you might need to do some engineering change requests, right? So what that means is that as Dave mentioned, you might need to buy additional modules, you might need to implement certain PLC code that's going to pull out tags in a way that you'd want it to be. Um, obviously, you need to work hand in hand to a certain extent and be able to provide value without trying to, you know, gouge them for uh, excessive funds. But you, you need to be reasonable with your requests. And typically they are seen well, especially if that person is, you know, very interested in getting a solution that makes sense. And to kind of maybe add on to Ira's like previous question, the the process is never really finished. So once we are done implementing a solution at a facility, usually what happens is that as managers start to use the system, it, there is, a, I guess, a bit of a learning curve, even though we've trained them, we've explained the system, but once we they dive in, they start seeing things that they want change or they want to slightly tailor maybe to their facility, like we talked about, then there's going to be this uh, support agreement that's going to be implemented and we can start working on certain tweaks, maybe custom solutions. And then um, it's a never ending process. So there's no expectations, I would say, but there will be some obvious deadlines. And I'd say that you want to hit the deadlines, right? Because at the end of the day, it's a two way street where if they're, uh, if they're lenient with what you're doing, you should be somewhat respectful of that and implement uh, and give back value accordingly. No, no, um, um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Dave, I think ahead, we wanted to, um, what if we, I guess, dive a little bit into the tools. So I think we've talked a bit about uh, Power BI. We talked about Tableau. We've talked about custom built solutions uh, offline between me and you. And uh, we, yeah. we also talked a little bit about uh, Jim's approach, right? So he's uh, taking data to a whole other level. Um, so I was curious, I guess, what kind of tools do you see utilized to maybe visualize the data, to clean the data, to present it to the customer mm -hmm. that may not be, you know, like full MES OE solutions, but still fall into uh, the process and being able to show it uh, to the customer? Yeah, no, completely. So uh, I guess like on my side, one of the first tools that I was using uh, with like process data, you know, and I think a lot of people go through that is Excel, right? And so Excel, 
or you're building an XS database or you're going and querying SQL. And so you get to that point and you're like, okay, what can I do? Uh, how can I do more of that? And so I see a lot of people using business intelligence tools, well, as you mentioned, like Power BI uh, and Tableau and pulling in process data uh, from your time series historian or from your SQL database so that you can go through the process of kind of slicing and dicing data on that. And I've certainly seen more and more of that. And I think we've seen a lot of power users uh, use those tools. Uh, and kind of beyond that, I would say that most of your like historians, especially your time series historian, your SSL Pi, uh, your Canary Labs, um, your InfluxDB, and, uh, and everything that goes along with those, most of those tools have data visualization tools as well. And so a lot of it becomes the, what am I most comfortable using? Am I comfortable using, you know, uh, this data visualization tool? Am I comfortable using, uh, you know, Power BI? And for me, when we talk about process data and manufacturing intelligence as a whole, it's what is the way that I can get the most powerful information into the hands of the power users as they are going down this process to, uh, to use it. Um, and especially in the last few years, I've seen a lot of people specifically get in and use Power BI, um, mostly because if you have a Microsoft license, Power BI um, is generally included. It, it, get, it gets a little bit more complicated, but it's generally included for the things that uh, you are going to use. And it's a super valuable tool. What kind of, um, I'm really curious, so once you, I'm assuming that you're collecting raw data into a SQL database, but what kind of um, maybe transformation do you go through in order to present, you know, meaningful insights to the end users? And I'm curious, at the same time, maybe what is the most important or some interesting metrics that people use? Is it OE, like in all cases, are there like other things that, uh, you know, might be more interesting to different facilities. I'm I'm curious what you've seen in the field. Yeah, so, so generally it's, uh, you know, you have your databases and you have to understand what a process database looks like. And I feel like that goes back very much to what we, what we were saying at the beginning of, you know, large canned ERP solutions versus custom solutions versus kind of everything in between. So a lot of that is the process knowledge and understanding what the databases mean. And so once you have the data, you can then go and kind of slice and dice and extrapolate that out. And I think a large, one of the best values of something like a Power BI is you can easily visualize what the data looks like um, as opposed to the old days of Excel, the pivot tables. And I would hope that everyone who's ever had to go and build like exceptionally tough pivot tables is cringing uh, along with me as I'm going to have some flashbacks tonight, uh, thinking of uh, pivot tables that have worked and pivot tables that haven't worked and access databases that just generally have not worked as well as I've wanted them to. But a lot of that is how can I visually show people the, the data that they have? And I would say, Vlad, kind of when you're talking about that peanut butter facility and they, they lost 10,000 pounds of peanut butter, it's like, Vlad, we should have plus 10,000 pounds of peanut butter. I don't know where we're at. You know, it, it's kind of those large outlandish numbers that I found that really start to hit home. Um, I've done some work in the confectionery industry, so like chocolate, um, you know, and it would not be an uncommon day that, you know, 500 pounds of chocolate ends up on the floor or, you know, a bunch of chocolate gets wasted as we're going through a process. And similar to like, you, we lost 10,000 pounds of uh, 
peanut butter, similar to, you know, if we're making juice of some sort, you know, we lost, you know, a thousand gallons or 20,000 or 50,000 gallons of juice. It's, it's kind of death by a hundred paper cuts. And so if you can be like, Hey, we lost 10,000 pounds of peanut butter. You know, we sell it for three bucks a pound. That's $30,000 that we lost just in this last month. Then, then it becomes a, okay, let, let's go figure out how we're losing this peanut butter. Let's go figure out how we're losing this waste. And then it's a, okay, let's dig into the data as deep as we can go and sometimes data will give you the answer, but a lot of times data is just kind of the first step along the process. And then you're, you're going out just the factory floor or you're talking to the people, especially in COVID times when you don't have to go fly to the factory. And so you're talking to them and you're asking questions about the process to, uh, to figure out what is going wrong. And then maybe it's we institute you know some sort of manual entry of, hey, we lost 50 pounds of peanut butter at this point. We lost it for X, Y, and Z reason, and then have to kind of continue down the process. And so for, for me, the, the data visualization tools are kind of the first entry point to show people what's actually happening in their process. And for many people, it's the first time they ever see this happening in their process. And then kind of the eyes get wide, and it's, I lost 10,000 pounds of peanut butter, or we lost 50,000 gallons of juice, or, or something along those lines. And it becomes, wow, you know, this is a lot of money. This is a lot of, of everything. Let's figure out how to, uh, let's figure out how to remedy this. And, and kind of going back to the question that you had asked, like, what does a sales process look like? A lot of times if the sales process is we're having questions we're kind of discovering what's going on in their process. We're discovering where there are gaps. And if the solution is an MES system or is an OEE system, then that's how we get there. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, in line to what I was thinking. But that's a, an interesting uh, process for sure. And I think that ties really back to uh, what Anthony had mentioned in his comment, right? So he's going through an exact same situation with a company. They have no clue of what they need or even what was possible. They're doing data collection with pen and paper. I put a small project together that automatically collect the data and they are sold. So I think that probably hits home to the both of us. But ultimately, uh, what happens a lot, and I, I want to say also that, you know, data is not necessarily the magic pill, right? So you do have an occurrence of a certain event that is uh, producing losses. So whether that is, like we said, just, uh, I guess, product being wasted or rejected or what have you, there's a quality deficiency. It could be uh, a process deficiency. It could, be, it could happen for a number of reasons, but that problem is going to be present whether you have an MES system or not. But once you have it in place, you're just getting a lot of visibility as to what's happening on your system. And again, to kind of bring it back to what we were discussing, that could take many steps, right? So for the peanut butter facility or for a juice facility, something that has liquids, well, perhaps they don't have the instrumentation in place to even track that, right? So it's not necessarily just putting servers in place and putting PLCs in place like we've talked about. It may also be adding instrumentation. So for example, you would come into that facility and propose like, hey, let's add a flow meter, right? So here's the mixing tank that's producing this final product, whether it is juice or peanut butter, 
here's the output of that tank, right? And for whatever reason, from that output to the final, um, you know, boxes of juice or cartons of juice or barrels of peanut butter, we're getting a lot less. So you can propose a solution to say, hey, let's track flows at this point and at that point, obviously use a totalizer that would then add up the product for that specific batch. And then in your system, you could demonstrate, well, here's what we're starting with, here's what we're ending with, and then you can start breaking down your process and getting access to that data. Now, I think it's very important to emphasize, and I have these conversations, at least with uh, a lot of the people that I train on these systems, but it's uh, not only a technology, it's also a mindset of your facility, right? So even if you put this in place, nothing's really going to change until your people are ready to take the steps on improving. And so what that means in practicality is um, certain companies would put in CI or continuous improvement teams, or they would appoint someone once again on each shift that would pay attention to what the system is reporting. But until those... Um, I guess human resources are in place and are capable of digesting and then act according to the data, uh, nothing is really going to uh, to take effect. And I think to uh, one of the points you had mentioned, if they do take that data and utilize it and apply the proper measure, measures, then a lot of gains can be realized, right? So again, if you alleviate that one problem, you're then going to uncover. So maybe if that's your main problem, you're going to figure out what the solution is, then you can address the second problem on your list, right? So that could be, again, the discrepancy between your shifts. So now you start looking at how can we train the operators? And once you've optimized that, the next problem could be, I don't know, maybe we have shutdowns because because of our mixing tank. And so now you're looking at different mixing tank solutions and that could lead us to a conversation about one mixing solution versus another, right? So you're starting to think about where to invest in upgrades at your facility. That could also lead to a conversation about, again, I would not call myself, let's say an expert on pumps, but maybe there's a difference between a higher viscosity versus a lower viscosity pump for, again, peanut butter, right? Because it's not a complete liquid. It's a non-Newtonian liquid actually, which is a topic of itself. But I guess where I'm trying to go with this point is that there's going to be a whole, um, array of different problems that you're going to uncover using these systems. And as you go through them with your key personnel, you should be able to figure out action plans for each one of them, what it's going to cost you in terms of financial investment, in terms of just human capital effort to solve them, and then provide the returns on investment that you have put into those systems. So... Um, no, no, completely agree. It's, it's all part of a continuous improvement process. And any system that you get and implement is only going to be as good as what you put into it. And before you go down the path of spending, you know, $5,000 or $500,000 on anything, make sure that you're willing to go down the path and the path is going to lead to continuous improvement. And it may be, it may be a maintenance issue. It may be an operator issue. It may be a supply chain issue. It will certainly unearth things that you maybe thought were an issue, maybe didn't think it was going to be an issue, but now you're going to have the, the cold hard data to back up, hey, this is the issue. We need to make this thing better. This is the number one or two or three reason why we have downtime. And then once you have that information, then the part of actually following up and finding a solution to that problem 
then falls upon the plate of you or someone in the organization. And you, you certainly will be able to get better. It's just going to take time and work to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why the the topic of manufacturing intelligence is very interesting because there's so many different problems that you can uncover by having the right data. And to, um, again, Anthony's uh, point is that data is always key, right? Because once you can demonstrate the data or prove a certain point, then you can get the buy-in from your management to implement certain solutions. And again, like uh, we can dive into a lot of examples, but you know, it could be as simple as like your labels are not coming out correctly on your boxes. Here's the data from like a reject system. The case packer has rejected, you know, 20% of the boxes that we've produced today. And so we need to reach out to the manufacturer of these boxes because a lot of times they're not made on site. And we need to figure out like a more cost-effective way of, you know, producing these materials. But the point is that data drives a lot of these decisions. And without data, you're essentially uh, blind to what's going on on your manufacturing floor. You might have, you know, if you walk out to that floor instead with a notepad, which um, in many cases I've seen done as well, uh, then you might be able to collect that data, but it's a lot more uh, cost efficient to have it available through a web application, through Power BI, through Tableau, whatever that may be. Dave, do you want to um, no. do you want to announce maybe our next next guest for next week? Has he been confirmed, or is that still up in the air? And we should not uh, necessarily. So mention we, we are still we are still waiting for uh, for confirmation. Okay. I'm, I'm glad we said this on the last. No, but we're still waiting for confirmation. Um, should have that shortly, and we will certainly uh, be back next week. Mm-hmm. And we should have a, a good guest next week, and we should have a couple of good guests following that. We want to get deeper into manufacturing intelligence and MES as yeah. a whole. Um, I guess. Did we want to? Did do we want to talk through an example uh, of an implementation? Did we want to talk through um, a couple of different things that uh, that we've done visualization-wise, like a super simple, uh, super simple project, a super simple ver- visualization versus uh, some more complex ones? Uh, which direction do you think we should go, Vlad? Sure, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you talk about a project. I think we'll wrap it up around seven. So. Let's, uh, Perfect. I'm leaving the floor to you. No, so, so awesome. So let, let's talk, uh, let's talk about some projects, I guess, um, on, on the simplest project that I have kind of ever worked that would certainly lead into this, um, and certainly kind of lead into OEE was, it was basically a couple of encoders, a, a red light, a green light, and basically a, it was a red line, like data productivity station. Um, so it was for a company that dry cleans, um, that dry cleans uniforms, right? And so the people who go through the process of actually folding these get paid per piece. And so they had noticed that sometimes, depending upon what was going on, the conveyor that would come out would slow, would speed up and other times it would slow down. And when it sped up, they would, would run into a whole bunch of issues with like the conveyor breaking and it would slow down. They wouldn't be able to, you know, physically get the process out there more, get, get it out there and they would continually have issues with it. So the, the simplest uh, started with basically a couple of encoders. So we're measuring the speed of the line. And then as 
a then as we you know went above or below the ideal speed range um the, the light would go off right so the light would go off we would know there's an issue there's a visual there is a visual on there and then kind of the second iteration of that became we we added a tv to that so you could go ahead and see kind of the speed of the line and you could see the number of pieces that each person had done and that was kind of like the simplest iteration of what could become um oee and then kind of from that and that was except that was extremely successful um, I think the company implemented that at some number of dozens or hundreds of facilities uh, across the United States. Uh, standardized on a couple of uh, couple of uh, lights and, a, and an encoder and a television that you buy from Best Buy. But no, so that that was a really good project. They uh, they found a bunch of really good value on that. And kind of on the other side is one of these like monstrous projects that Vlad was talking about, where you're like, okay, I want to start with MEF. And so you go and you look at that, and that's almost certainly going to be inclusive of OEE, and then you get to track and trace because you want to trace the raw materials, and then you want to do quality, so you've got quality or, or SPC, and then you get to, okay, we should be able to schedule this, right? And so then, then you kind of roll scheduling in, and it's like, okay, how can I reduce downtime between the runs? And so you're going through the process of scheduling it, and it just it certainly can uh, become an absolutely monstrous task. And the, one of the ways that I like to think about that, and Glad, if you want to talk about an implementation, um, you're also more than welcome to. But I like to think of those as like phases. Of let, let's start with what the lowest hanging fruit is, whether it's data visualization or scheduling or OEE, and then be like, okay, the, the, the next big gain is going to be X thing. And so kind of understanding where the project is going to go, but being realistic and getting each phase of the project out there as quickly as possible so that you can build buy-in. It's a lot easier to build buy-in, kind of putting one piece out and then a couple of weeks later having some conversations and putting the next piece out, as opposed to, you know, taking 18 months and dropping in a million dollar system and then just expecting everyone knows how to work with this while it was all built on like two whiteboards in uh, project manager's uh, back room and no one had talked to the people on the floor. And I, I have had too many of those implementations where no one had talked to the people on the plant floor until it is uh, until it is too late. Of course, of course, they just uh, one point in time they just show up and you show up and they're like, well, here's the new system, guys. You got you're going to be using it from this day here's forward. The system. Good yes. luck. Yeah. Um, they they, they didn't I, purchase any training. Right. Right. I've I've been in those scenarios too. But um, I'll talk about a, a slightly different maybe than an OE implementation. So we talked about the peanut butter facility and one of the coolest uh, MES related project for them was an implementation of a recipe control system. And so what they were doing uh, before we got there was printing out these like paper sheets. So someone would go in their database and we want this peanut butter. Let's say, here's the recipe for like this crunchy peanut butter with chocolate. And it would tell you, you know, this is how much peanut butter or, or peanuts and pounds. This is how much sugar it would get. This is how much salt, how many, you know, molasses. So just a, a list of different ingredients that would go into a certain batch. And then based on an SAP schedule, it would be told, well, we need again, 10,000 pounds, 50,000 pounds or a number of barrels. 
And so somebody would print that out as a paper sheet, bring it into the operation room, and then they would essentially have like a wall of uh, VFD drives and they would set, you know, the speed of the drives and they would know based on the speed and a certain time. So they would literally time the drives to how much pounds it would put into the peanut butter. Now, the problem with that, I guess you can start seeing the problems, but one of the problems is that you would not get the right mixture of your ingredients uh, in in the end product. And so what they would do is they would measure, they would go with a cup and like a, a chrono, they would walk up to the motor that, you know, dispenses sugar. They'd put like the cup and like press the start button, like one minute, they'd go like weigh the cup of sugar that came out. And then they would obviously adjust the motor based on that reading. But so the recipe management system. So, so the interesting thing is that they had the equipment in place to be able to feed. So the motors that they were using and the load cells that they were using would provide them that feedback, but it was like trends Mm -hmm. on like the special like OE, uh, sorry, OEM machine, right? So they Mm -hmm. would be able to go to this motor and they were like trend, like how many pounds it's, it's dispensing, but it's, um, I guess not very intuitive to them and it was not tied into their control system. So by implementing a uh, PLC based kind of relay of that data and then providing them with a recipe management system that would allow them to add new recipes, to change the existing recipes, to put in, you know, like how many pounds of sugar they would want. And then that would be calculated using totalizers on the line. They were able to just select we want like to run chocolate peanut butter for this specific, uh, you know, product. We want to run this uh, salty peanut butter. We want to run this like crunchy peanut butter. And then that recipe system would essentially load the recipe that they want to run and then adjust the speeds of the motors accordingly. And again, like using PID loops, be able to correlate, you know, and dial those in uh, as expected. And as a result of that, reduce their waste by a lot. Because what would happen is, you know, they would run a batch and they would do, let's say like every four hours, a quality control test where they would bring the peanut butter. And again, I'm not obviously an expert on the chemical composition of peanut butter, but they would run like viscosity tests. They run some kind of a test to figure out the amount of salt in the peanut butter, the amount of sugar. And if it didn't pass the quality inspection, they would have to stop the batch, figure out what the issue was and like restart all over. And so mm-hmm. by using a recipe management system in that specific environment and say it saved them a lot of money. And you can start thinking of, you know, once they figure it out, just those motor problems and the control system problems, then you also had problems with, you know, operators entering the wrong value. So for example, on the night shift, like we talked about earlier, someone could come in and like punch in, you know, let's, uh, let's say a thousand pounds of sugar instead of a hundred pounds of sugar, Right. Uh, it makes quite a bit of a of a difference, but you would get alerts saying like, are you sure that you want to enter this amount if you're going to like a custom mode? And uh, you can start seeing, you know, how operators are working the line, how they're choosing the recipes, are there any problems? And you start uncovering more and more as you uh, peel back the onion or the metaphorical onion, so to speak. So that system helped them quite a bit. And on the same side, you know, management was able to kind of, enter those recipes a lot better because then they had control over, you know, how they're being manufactured on the production floor. So, yeah, no, that's kind of my story. That that makes, I like it. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that as we're wrapping up 
today. We should ask people to send us, you know, some of their MES uh, questions, send us and, and drop in the comments below. You guys have a horror story or something like that that, uh, that you'd like to share. We would be uh, we'd be happy to talk about those uh, moving forward as well. Um, well I, I think that uh, we're running up on time, and I think we could talk about this for 20 more hours, which is uh, which bodes well for the fact that we have another show next Wednesday, uh, yep. which leads me into Wednesday the 31st at six o'clock East Coast time. Um, we will be back. You guys can go and find events that should uh, miraculously populate at some point next week um, as well. Again, Wednesday night, same time, uh, guest to be announced, and you guys will see that come up when, uh, when that becomes uh, completely official and we have confirmed times with them. Um, any other comments before we uh, we wrap up? Vlad, can't talk. Any other comments before we wrap up, Vlad? No, I think uh, maybe we're aligning to kind of explore the topic of uh, data accuracy. So maybe slightly tease the topic for next week, whether or not we have a guest. I think what's very critical in these systems, as we've alluded to, is to have the right data, uh, to have validated data, but ultimately data that can also be accessed and then cleaned up after the process in order to provide a meaningful insight to the management teams to uh, to make decisions. So I think that's what we're going to be talking about next. And I think it's uh, an extremely important topic. So looking forward to it, Dave. Completely agreed. Um, again, thank you guys uh, for taking a listen, for taking a watch, for, uh, for being part of this. Um, again, uh, if you guys are listening, uh, please drop us a like, a comment, uh, subscribe and, and give us five stars on iTunes and, and all of those other fun things. Uh, and if you haven't found us, we are live on manufacturinghub.live, as well as Solus PLC and Dave-Griffith.com for all of your manufacturing hub and kind of generally everything else needs. Uh, I guess until next week, we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye.